This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. Your hosts for this episode are Ken Moorfield, that's me, and Todd Truffin. That's me. This is episode number six for November 2011, and our topic today is The Crucible, directed by Nicholas Hinter from the screenplay and play by Arthur Miller. This is not a spoiler-free discussion, so if you have not yet read the play, go back and do your homework before you listen to this podcast. And uh, if you do not want spoilers, uh, now would be a good time to check out one of the other great podcasts on Film Geek Radio. So, Todd, The Crucible. Yes. I don't think we need a full summary of the play, but for those of us who maybe haven't read it or seen it since high school, which is where most people are introduced to the play, can you give us the the two-minute synopsis? Well, the two-minute synopsis is we have a story set uh, during the time of the Salem Witch Trials. We have a young woman, Abigail Williams, who has been tossed out of one house um, where she was acting as a servant, and the film version makes it very clear. The, the play version's a little edgier or more mysterious, but it seems that the young girls of the town have been caught up by witchcraft, and there are accusations made, and Abigail accuses the, the, the woman who threw her out of the house of being a witch, and at that point, the town goes crazy, I think we can say. They bring in an, an investigator, and there is all sorts of accusations going back and forth as to who is a witch, and several people are imprisoned, and many are hung. And through it all, we have John, who is the husband of the woman who had been accused originally of being a witch, and he and Abigail it is intimated had had a relationship and he had broken it off. Those are the things, a little muddled maybe, but... It seems to me a standard part of the mythology surrounding the play, not actually in the play, is its origins as a political piece. Arthur Miller, the playwright, appeared before the House uh, Committee on Un-American Activities and presented this play as an allegory or a metaphor for... Uh, the Red Scare of McCarthyism in the, the 1950s that sort of saw a parallel in terms of the way in which an accusation of witchcraft led to hysteria and guilty until proven innocent and saw a parallel to that in the ways in which people who were accused of communism were ostracized or proved uh, guilty, you know, thought guilty until proven I innocent. So, I mean, that is certainly an, an open subtext of the play, if you will, and it's impossible really to uh, talk about the play without talking about it as a political allegory. Absolutely. Um, I, I guess one of the things we had talked about beforehand in our, our program notes 
is then almost why discuss this play in a podcast for religion, faith, and spirituality? Is it ultimately about religion and faith? Does it have anything to say about religion and faith? Or is religion and faith really just largely uh, a MacGuffin, a, a, you know, a symbol in there uh, to get us to what Miller really wants to talk about, which is politics and ideology? Sure. And, you know, certainly the way the film is presented is it the film makes it very hard to really believe that the people in the film are acting in a faith-based way. Even the audience, as an audience, we, we have no mystery. The play, or the film, I'm sorry, begins with all of the girls out in the woods dancing you know, around a fire and there's symbols around. And so it seems very witchcrafty. Although it also seems pretty clear from the way the girls are presented that most of the girls there aren't really there because they truly believe in witchcraft. They're there just because they want boys to like them. Yeah, they're messing around. Um, yeah. The decision to add that that opening scene, the play opens in medias Ray, you know, in the middle of things. Right. Um, after one of them's already sick, and uh, and we sort of construct this this back story of some of the goings on beforehand. But in large part, I think this this sort of prologue that's more literal in in the film undercuts any sense of tension uh because there's never any question i mean there's not a whole lot of question in the play but there's no question at all in the movie about who's lying and who's telling the truth because we know that they're lying pretty much from the beginning you know from the beginning or we know that and and so in some ways it's hard to see the film i don't know about the play as you know, saying anything meaningful about tension or conflict created by doubt and belief, because there's there's not really any doubt. It's very bald-faced. Well, and it's also very clear the people who are being accused are presented in the film, at any rate, as, you know, their faith is very secure. They don't seem to be people who are wrestling with their faith or are at all involved in the witchcraft and the action of the accusers just it, it seems to drive that point even further that this is this is not about faith it's about power and who gets to wield it faith is it, I'm more and more I'm I'm coming around to be getting confirmed to the opinion that the faith is strictly symbolic in the film like the film's not actually interested in the faith as faith or what this conflict or what this incident in American history says about faith. It's really only using it as a symbol to talk about uh, politics. It's, it's very, it almost seems to me to be almost uh, postmodern or very cynical mm-hmm. um, as a play because, uh, you know, it, it's got that notion that all claims to truth are it's not like let's sort it out and who are the innocent and genuine believers for versus who are the manipulators it's everyone is a manipulator i'm not sure that i see anyone in this play amongst the accusers or the prosecutors who is a genuine believer you you know who genuinely thinks 
this is actually happening. They, they either seem to be like, I can take advantage of this in a very cynical way, or I know it's not happening, but I have to pretend that it is as a means of going along and protecting myself, or I have already killed 19 or 20 people, so the consequences of admitting that it's not happening at this point, you know, I can't necessarily bear, but I, I wanted someone within the play to at least represent the voice of maybe I'm wrong, but I'm genuinely wrong. You know, I believe in I'm wrong as opposed to I don't really believe it. You know, I don't really believe it all. Was there anyone in the play for you who well, you thought actually genuinely believed it? And Well, I guess I'm hearing you kind of talk about two different things. At least I think you are. You know, there's the one idea of truth, you know, what really happened and you know, people being willing to go after truth. And then there's the question of, is it possible for there to have been any supernatural activities going on? A faith-based response that there is truly is evil and there is a Christian response to it. And certainly to the faith-based idea, I don't think there's anything there. I, to me, there never was a character that seem to be really invested in a true faith belief. On the other hand, I do think that the John Proctor character is interested in truth. For a while, he hangs back. He's not going to get involved with all of this until he absolutely has to, until his wife gets accused. And throughout the trial, he's wanting to tell the truth. Now, through the various machinations of others, he ends up in jail and convicted. And there is that interesting scene toward the end where he is brought out and basically told, I think this is the cynical side, confess. We really don't care if your confession's true, just confess and mm -hmm. we'll let you live. And he really struggles because he is a truth teller. He is a, a person who is interested in being true. And through a great struggle, he finally decides to bow to the pressure and sign a confession. And if the powers that be had left things be, the film would have ended and he would have gone on. But they press him and they want him to name other names. And at that point, he rethinks his position. Well, well, actually, I I, I want to correct you there because I just re, I mean I just rewatched the film today. Oh, okay. And preparation, and I actually thought it was somewhat what interesting. I I was expecting that because of my memory and right. the the naming names. The judge Haythorn, played by Paul Schofield, initially asked him to name names, but then uh, Reverend Hale and the other ones. Uh, he refuses to name names, and the other accusers impress upon Haythorn to say, well, in this one instance, let's let it be enough that he doesn't name right. names. You, right, you know, you're right. Let's, everyone else has to, to prove that they're innocent. But, you know, we've all kind of wink, wink, know that none of this is really true anyway, so let's not make him do that. And it's at that one point where even Haythorn says, okay, you don't have to name names. Then they say... You do have to ever, however, post your confession right. on the church door. Right. And at that point, he says, 
no, you, it's okay for me if you bear witness and tell everyone that I confessed, but I don't want my confession in, in the church door. And at, and at that point they say, well, n- no, that's not good enough. Right. Um, and at that point he rips it up. So he rips it up. Um, but he is uh, still, he is still brought to this point of the question <clears throat> is, is he willing to basically allow a lie to stand? And he does finally say no. Um, right. And that and he goes to his death because of it. And I think the reason that the not naming names was so important to me uh was that I think that's the point at which even the Haythorn character, the judge, who up until that point seems to be the most sincere, mm-hmm. um actually demonstrates and that I don't know what we would call in the court, a consciousness of guilt or a consciousness of fraud, uh, because there's nothing in his character or in his logic in the strict application of the law that says, oh, we ought to uh, allow him to not name names. Uh, and yet, you know, up until that point, he's been all principle. This is the principle. This is the principle. Uh, everyone has to do it. Uh, and at that point, he says, okay, you don't have to name name names. And that seems to me to, to indicate that deep down, even Haythorn is a cynic, you know, right. uh, that he recognizes that it's it's theater or he acknowledges in a in a inferential way that it is um, that it's all a game, that it's not real. Sure. And, and I would agree with that. I, I, I think it's very clear that all of the court members, the people sitting in judgment are, are pretty much shown to you know, not, you know, it's a pretty cynical picture of them that it's a, it's about ideology. It's about keeping people in line and it's not really about a quest for truth of what actually happened. And then also a, a willingness to be open to spiritual truth. It reminded me actually of something you said in the Dogville podcast about how allegories tend to be about ideas and not very complex. And uh, I kept wanting the, the film to be about doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the thing about it is, is that no one had doubt on either side. You, you know, John had no doubt that she was lying because he knew. It, it didn't seem to me like anyone in the story genuinely believed and misguided. It, it was like a world that seemed to me to be almost anachronistic in the sense of no one genuinely believes anything. It's just um, they're all using belief as a way of positioning superior power in the court or influence. But there's no one actually who isn't sure about what they think. It's just, you know, in some ways it's a conflict between certainty and certainty. And we've got no place side to be on other than John's because we happen to know from the film's imprimatur that his certainty is grounded in actual truth, you know, whereas their certainty is grounded in kind of knowing falsehood or knowing lie. You know, I mean, maybe I just wanted the Salem witch trials to be to be at least a place in our, our history uh, where people actually did believe. Right. And I think, you know, as far as it goes in terms of looking at this as a representation of the Salem witch trials themselves. We do have to be a, a bit careful there. Um, Miller himself has said that he played fast and loose. Yes. With the facts, 
you know, he was you know, very clearly interested in making a political statement about 1950s America. One of the things that I looked up in my research before watching the film today about the Salem Witch Trials is that apparently the historical Abigail Williams was like 11 or 12 years old, and she's actually made older in the film. She's 17 in the film. Right. So that she can have this sexual relationship with John Proctor and had never heard before that the historical Abigail Williams was like 11 or 12. And I think in the wake of a week where we've been talking about Penn State and child sexual abuse, uh, there is something that would be just kind of a little uh, weird about this mass hysteria. The, the film retains some of the girls as being younger and getting caught up in this misbehaving, but also up in this this sort of frenzy. But film that was actually about the ringleaders being a bunch of kids who, you know, panic and are believed is very different than, you know, a 17-year-old who is is very deliberately uh, using this uh, lie that has cultural currency in order to strike out at John and his wife. While we're on the subject of, uh, of ages, too, I just wanted to say in passing that I think one of the things that hurts the film is the casting mm -hmm. um, that uh, Winona Ryder I have mixed feelings about. But I think this film was made in 1996, which means that Winona Ryder would have been largely 24 when it's made. Uh, so we've got a 24-year-old playing a 17-year-old. And there's, you know, it's a little bit different when a 17-year-old is coming out with these accusations than, um, you know, undercuts some of the ways in which people do tend to get a little hysterical when children are involved. Sure. And one of the things that, you know, is somewhat interesting in the film in terms of thinking about the witchcraft um, accusations is the film does try at some point to introduce doubt into our minds um, through various pieces of quote-unquote evidence. Um, you know, the girls are said to, you know, their skin goes cold um, when, you know, a spirit is supposed to be in the room. Um, they can't speak. They can't wake. Um, and I guess, Mike, you know, as we're talking about this, I'm just wondering what your take was on those you know, attempts to make it seem as though there might be something to the girls' experiences. Yeah. I, I mean, there seemed to me to be a half-hearted attempt at drawing in, drawing in doubt. Uh, of course, any attempts at drawing in doubt that are in particular scenes are going to be undercut by the film actually showing us that not just allowing us to come to the conclusion that they're acting – but the film showing us that they're acting, you know, showing us this, you know, the other people or characters in the play may have to take Proctor's word that Abigail has confessed. But we don't because we saw it. So whatever response that we explanation we have to come up with for, say, the cold skin or the fainting or the comatose patient, it, it's like none of those I, I say are I say those are half hearted attempts at drawing in doubt because they don't have the same effect as if we didn't have a signed confession or a video, you know, right. a, a video confession. I, I mean, I guess part of how in, in a good Gothic tradition, would I explain their ability of their, their skin actually being cold? 
that characters in some kind of psychological or psychosomatic way might be able to, you know, get themselves into a frenzy, uh, that there's a power of mass hypnosis in terms of sexual panic or religious panic, uh, that it could just be the power of suggestion, uh, like, oh, wow, it really is cold. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had a, you know, uh, had a loved one that you're living with who may or may not have a fever say, does, you know, my head feel hot to you? And that never works with me. Whenever they ask me, does my head feel hot? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it does. You know, and then they take their temperature and it's like, no, it doesn't. And they're like, well, it really did feel hot to me. So I think we're open to suggestion. Um, certainly another possible explanation is that the, the independent verifiers, the person who feels her for it and says, yeah, it really is cold, are themselves faking. I think, both of us are agreeing that as a film about spiritual things, it's a really good film about politics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you one question. There's a lot of really good actors in this film. Daniel Day-Lewis is a good actor. Uh, Paul Schofield is, is just a giant. Um, you know, there are people who have done good work in other films. Jeffrey George, Francis Conroy, Conroy Joan Allen. Got mm-hmm. an Oscar nomination for uh, Best Supporting Actress, Bruce Davison. So there are a lot of good good actors in there. It was one of those films where I kind of felt like stylistically everyone was in a different movie. Like they weren't all on the same page. Like the director had come in and said, here's how we're going to play it. Uh, it. It seemed like Daniel Day-Lewis was very muted mm-hmm. uh, or trying to be very muted, whereas like – Francis Conroy and Bruce Davidson start off shrill and, you know, stay shrill throughout the whole movie. Um, that, um, the Paul Schofield is much more of, uh, I'm going to take this totally in earnest and play someone who's viewing this as totally earnest. Whereas, uh, Winona Ryder seems to me to be playing up the sex angle and the sexual attraction, uh, and almost winking at the audience or you know her her performance seems very self-conscious or or self-aware um and it just seemed like the different parts of the movie were all all at odds with each other like you know it seemed like each scene that i saw was a weird combination or pastiche of different styles so my one question was did you get any of that and my second question was that it, it it seems like uh, the film starts off almost at a pitch level, and then it has nowhere to go. It seems very one note to me. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, rather than working itself up into a frenzy, it starts at a frenzy, and then it's got nowhere else to go except for more, you know, more and more frenzy. And I, and I got the feeling like maybe Daniel Day Lewis was trying to not be frenzied or emotional to try to at least get a different note or a different rhythm in there rather than just two hours of screaming and swaying and hysteria. The tension and the hysteria didn't seem to build and spiral out of control. It just starts out of control and and, and just stays there. You know, uh, I was wondering what you thought of either of those comments. Well, I think, you know, the idea of it starting at a high point and not coming down, mm-hmm. certainly I think the addition... Emotionally. Right, and I, th- I think that addition of that opening scene that you mentioned is certainly part of the problem because it's a bunch of girls dancing around a fire screaming. Um, and 
it kind of goes from there. Um, the other thing I would say is that I've seen this, I've seen the play in production uh, twice, and both productions had the same problem. And so it makes me wonder if that isn't then a problem with the script. Um, just that there's something, or at least we have this picture in our head that if people are running around calling people witches, that they have to do it in a screaming voice, I guess is the yeah. other, you know, the other problem. Um, you know, I do think that the script, the play as a play reads better than the film came out. Um, yeah. And, and I would, but I would also say it's not Arthur Miller's best play. He certainly has other plays that are more subtle, um, have more you know skill at moving us th- through some emotional changes and building to a moment. Um, and I guess my thought on that is I'm kind of constantly reminded of a conversation that I tend to have with um, folks as when we talk about Christian art is that problem of going into an art-making process with an idea already in your head of, I've got to make a point. Mm -hmm. And how that almost invariably lessens the quality of the artwork. Because at that point, the artwork is not organically growing. It's not coming forth with just, you know, an honest expression. It's, you've already got the answers. And in as much as art is about finding answers, if you've already got them, why do you need the art? The, the uh, meaning is being imposed on it rather than extracted from it. Exactly. And, and uh, I wonder if that isn't a problem here, because Miller was very you know, open about the project of this, this play. Right. I think that part of where that, that sort of emotional stridency of starting there uh, undercuts the power for the f- film for me is whether you're talking religiously or or politically in my own experience people who are the most strident like that once they've reached that point there's no reasoning with them there's there's no real possibility that right. you, you know you'll get through to them and the play wants you to take seriously the notion that perhaps this could be avoided, you know, that is to say there are people who start off with a frenzy, but the judge is like, well, um, once John accuses Abigail of being a whore, it's like, well, okay, we'll bring in his wife and, uh, well, you know, there's a sense in which the play wants to say that reason can still cut through all of the hysteria or perhaps if people had exercised reason before the hysteria had gotten out of control, had nipped it in the bud, there might have been a, you know, a different consequence. Uh, but, you know, in my experience, it's like it, it's not, uh, at least in the play, I've seen some productions of the play where it's, you know, it at least starts off for the first half of Act One where the accusations build and start spreading like wildfire uh, but it, there is at least a little bit of a period in the play before things just totally get chaotic and strident and, and in, in panic mode. But that once they do, there seems to be, a, to me, a kind of emotional inevitability about the outcome. Whereas the film wants to present it as the outcome's still in doubt and there's still this dramatic tension. And, and I'm like, 
No, there really isn't, because you know, once people have reached the panic, they're they're not going to listen to reason. No. Uh, so why are you going through this you know, sham of a trial? Because people who are people who are in that state, the trial is not really about finding the truth. It's about sort of validating and justifying. It's a kind of theatrical piece that you know is simply a prelude to whatever it is that that they're going to do or to re- relieve the tension. But there seems to be this odd mix in the play and the film of, on the one hand, we're in a panic, we're in a panic, we're in a panic. But plot-wise, we haven't decided yet what we're going to do about it, you know. And that strikes me as false, both, you know, from a religious point of view and a political point of view. It's it's like when people get in a panic, they act. They don't, they don't try to decide what to do. Sure, sure. One of the things that I, I was kind of hesitant to bring up but as we the more we talk about the ways that the film's not working it does make me want to think about um, a film about a similar type of subject or a similar type of thing that did work and just kind of throw it out as you know for those who are listening and if we've turned you off on seeing this film the crucible maybe you want to go back and look at this other one that does a better job and that is Dreyer's day of wrath yeah um, and now part of this is I just had a class where I had my students watch this film. But, you know, that is a film where the people involved, you really believe that they are acting on faith. Um, there, there is a sense of true belief. And there is a slow buildup. You know, people are thinking, yes, there's a witch involved. Yes, there's you know, an untoward love affair to deal with, much like The Crucible. Um, but you actually do feel at various points throughout the film that things actually could go different directions. Um, you do see people making choices and, you know, I, I find it to be a more effective film for, Mm -hmm. you know, all of those reasons that we've been complaining about the crucible. Um, it seems to kind of go in the opposite direction. Yeah. I, well, that might be a good place to sort of transition towards a conclusion. I, I, I would second that uh, recommendation for Dreyer's The Day of Wrath. I might also throw out my recommendation for uh, a film about similar themes uh, that works better for me would be Robert Bresson's The Trial of Joan of Arc, which mm. is, uh, last I heard, was still only available in Region 2 DVD, in that film too there is a sense in which people are disputing about the truthfulness of religious claims and people are using religious claims as covers for power as foundations for why i'm going to kill you why i'm going to oppose you uh you know for all sorts of of behavior uh but it's also grounded in conviction and so i think it's very much of a film about not just how people, it's not just a film about how everyone who claims to believe some Christian thing is just a liar or a phony, uh, but is a more complex film about how belief and doubt can create these conflicts that intersect in the political sphere uh, and and sort of condition our, our responses to one another and, and what we do what we do to one another and how we justify it on the basis of our, our own belief or, or someone else's. So great. We have 
through discussing the Crucible, we come to the conclusion that we should go watch two other films. Yes, and that would be uh, Carl Theodore Dreyer's Day of Wrath and Robert Rassan's The The Trial of Joan of Arc. Excellent. Uh, All right, this uh, concludes this episode of The Thin Place. Uh, Listeners, if you've got questions, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow me, Ken, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash Ken Moorfield or uh, link to my written reviews at the number one morefilmblog.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio. Yeah.